all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. School is starting back, and one of the many preparations for the start of back to school is scheduling checkups for your kids and teens. And today we're going to be talking about vaccines that are needed for school and daycare, as well as vaccines for our teenagers. We have Dr. Feldman on with us today, and he is going to help us with these discussions. We would love to hear from you, so give us a call this morning and share your comments and questions with us at one eight seven seven mpb ring that's one 672 You can also send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. So welcome, Dr. Feldman. Thank you for coming on today with us. Thank you for having me. So first, uh, Dr. Feldman shared this with me, and I wanted to make sure that we passed this on. Since school is starting back and everyone's vaccinations need to be up to date. One of the things that is required by the schools and daycares is what we call a 121 form. That is going to be the shot record to show that your child is up to date on their vaccinations. You can get this from your doctor's office, but also the health department, the Mississippi Department of Health right now is doing a drive started Monday, the 27th, and it does it's for two weeks. So it'll end next Friday where you can come to the uh, Mississippi Department of Health Office of Vital Records. It's in Ridgeland off Highland Colony Parkway. And for that, you can get your child's 121 form for free as long as your child is up to date. Uh, from what I understand, you can just drive up and call them and they will bring it out to your car so that there's no waiting in line and we can properly social distance like we're supposed to. Um, and so that is available for you. You do not have to live in Ridgeland or Madison County. You can, if you're just somewhere nearby or you're in the area, Anyone from Mississippi, anyone from the state of Mississippi can come to this office of vital records where they can get their child's 121 form. So just wanted to make sure that everyone knew that this was available. Um, If your child is not up to date, now is the time to do that. If you cannot get into your pediatrician's office, you can also call your local county health department and schedule an appointment where you can go get the immunizations that are needed there. Um, How do you find out what your county health department is? Uh, You can Google it, but you can also go to the Mississippi Department of Health website. That is msdh.ms.gov. So that is the Mississippi Department of Health's website. There's a couple of places. So if you're on a computer, 
you'll see across the top there is something marked locations. If you're on your phone and not a big screen, it may be at the bottom left-hand side. But what you're going to do is click on locations, and that will pull up all the different counties. And all you have to do is click on your county, and it will pull up your health, your county health department's address and phone number. So that is how you can call the health department and get your appointment scheduled so that you can get your child's immunizations. Um, but again, that is going to be at the Mississippi Department of Health Office of Vital Records. It is in Ridgeland, and it is from 8 to 4.30, and it started July 27th and is through August 7th. And it's a way to get your child's 121 form for free as long as they're up to date on vaccines. Um, Dr. Feldman, do you have anything else to add for that? No, the only thing to add is if somebody needed a birth certificate or license, like any kind of license thing. They have to pay for it, but they can do the same thing. So for some right. reason, you need a birth certificate or a marriage certificate or whatever, but that's not free. The only thing that's free is your immunization record. Right. I think the birth certificate it says is $17, and then for each additional copy, it's $6. So that is definitely available there. Um, so we'll mention all of, we'll give all that information out again later in the show in case you missed that. Uh, but for now, we're going to get into talking about the different vaccines that we need for our children as they are heading back to school. Um, and so for our children, we start with infants giving vaccines, getting them ready for school. Um, so we do vaccines at two months, four months, six months. And then again, at 12 months, 15 months, and 18 months to catch us up and our, get our infants up to date on their vaccinations. Um, so, Dr. Feldman, can you tell us a little bit about what type of vaccines that they are receiving, those infants that we're catching them up in their vaccines? Well, there's sort of a standard set of vaccines. One is the whooping cough, tetanus, and diphtheria vaccine, which actually has been around since the 40s. Polio vaccine, now since sometime in the 50s. The measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, again, it's been around since the 70s. Um, kids have been routinely getting that. The chickenpox vaccine, um, that's probably in the last 15 or 20 years that we've had that vaccine. And then there's the hepatitis B vaccine. Hepatitis B is a liver infection. And the problem with that infection is if you get it as a kid, you're likely to go on and probably die from liver disease 20 or 30 years later because it affects the liver tremendously. So we use this vaccine to prevent that, and it's very successful. Hepatitis B is still around, but not like it used to be many years ago. And those are the vaccines that you get. There are other vaccines that you get or can get from your doctor, rotavirus, to prevent the diarrhea. That's back in two, four, and six months. But that's not a school requirement. Haemophilus influenza B, which prevented a meningitis, which was very common back in the 60s and in the 70s. It's almost unheard of now. Um, that's not required for school. You get that as an infant. Um, but so for school, what you'll need is to make sure that you've had this DTAP, which is the diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, that you've had five doses. And the odds are you did because you had it two, four, six, and then somewhere between 12 and 15 months or so, uh, you got another dose, which was four. 
It's now entering school. It will be your fifth dose. Polio, well, everybody's basically had the polio vaccine. And usually you get four, three doses, maybe four doses. But uh, all you'll need to get into school is uh, the fourth dose, which has to be given after the fourth birthday. So what happens is many kids got the polio with their other shots earlier in life, and they already had four. But the catch-22 is you have to have a dose after your fourth birthday. So many kids wind up with five doses instead of four, but it's no big deal. Nothing unusual. Hepatitis B, three doses. And our hepatitis B vaccine rate in infants for their three doses is well over 90%. So basically, 90% of the kids, by the time they get to school, they will have had their three doses. So it's not a big deal. If they didn't, well, they go ahead and just get another dose. Uh, but again, the vast majority have had the three doses. Measles, mumps, and rubella. Everybody gets that at 12, 15, sometimes 18 months, but mostly 12 or 15 months. And then you need another dose. And the main reason for that is it's found that one dose is protective well over 90%. But when you get two doses, it's closer to 95 to 99%. So that's why we came up with the second dose. And we've done that since the 1990s when we began to have outbreaks in kids who had gotten just one dose. And we figured out that if we got two doses, it made a difference in the world. So you'll need two doses of that MMR uh, vaccine. It also includes the German measles vaccine or rubella. And we almost see nothing of that in this country. Really rare. Measles, we still have occasionally coming in from foreign sites, uh, you know, outbreaks in Disney World and stuff like that. But now with our people getting two doses, we don't see it as much uh, when it happens in one of these places. It doesn't involve American children as much because they've had two doses. Then, of course, the chickenpox vaccine um, is a two-dose vaccine. And uh, that's been more annoying than it is a fatal disease and all that kind of stuff. But it's a nice disease not to have. Um, because it's really a pain. And that's what you need for school. So the DTAP, make sure you've had five doses. Polio, four doses with at least one dose after four years of age, which means many kids are going to get five doses. Hepatitis B, probably not a problem. Almost everybody's had it. Uh, measles, bumps, and rubella, yeah, you need to get into uh, fifth grade, uh, not fifth grade, it's, um, elementary school or pre-K to have two doses of that and the same with the chicken pox. Right. And it, you'll, that 121 form, that shot record that we were talking about, it has different boxes associated with each shot. So it's very easy to read and follow. You can take a look at it um, and make sure that your child has had all the appropriate ones. But the health department, your pediatrician, they'll be able to make sure that your child has had enough of the doses um, if you have any questions about that, if your child has had enough. Um, when I was looking over all the vaccines that we were going to talk about today, it was just kind of crazy seeing some of the old numbers because a lot of these diseases, fortunately, I have not seen um you know i've never seen diphtheria before but 
when I was reading some numbers, you know, previously before the vaccine came out, it was killing 15,000 kids and people a year, um, which is just crazy to think about. And then polio, it was, uh, say, which we have essentially eradicated it here in the U.S. It is still around in some developing countries. Um, but, you know, 15,000 a year were having paralysis from polio. Um, so I'm fortunate that I have never seen some of these diseases, but just things that we don't even think about uh, because we have these vaccinations that we're not seeing any of the things that they used to see 50 years ago. The last case of polio in this country was 1979. But just to keep it in proper perspective, there's times when you go into the sewer system in this country and find polio virus. Huh. So again, it's not often, but it can be found. And that's one reason why we continue to vaccinate with polio, because even though we've eradicated disease, again, 1979, um, still in the sewer system, not often by any means, but just to show you that is there. Um, diphtheria, like you mentioned, we may have one or two cases in the country, and it's usually not the old-fashioned diphtheria in which you basically wind up choking to death because it gets in your throat. Uh, but you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, it's just it's just crazy to me to think of these numbers because – uh, fortunately, like I said, in my training and in my practice, I have not seen these. I've, we've seen pertussis still some. And, um, you know, I've even had a patient of mine that had Hib, which we very rarely see. Um, but they did have Hib in their blood and caused meningitis. Uh, so some of these we still have seen. But some of these that we vaccinated against for so long, it's just crazy to look back and see the numbers and see how far we've come through vaccines. So. Oh, yeah, one vaccine we didn't mention, that was my fault. We talked about the Hib for meningitis <coughs> is a pneumococcal vaccine, which also gives the infants, which also causes meningitis, which doesn't now because everybody's basically getting that vaccine. I forgot to mention that, but it's not a school requirement. Well, we will take our first quick break, but we will continue our discussions about vaccines. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. So please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy, Kids and Teens, on MPB Think Radio. We're talking today about vaccines and 
as school is getting started back, everyone is having to get their checkups and make sure they're up to date on their vaccines. And so that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about which vaccines are needed and going to answer some common questions that we as pediatricians get asked about vaccines. If you have any questions or maybe you have some comments you would like to share, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 So I got someone, uh, someone sent us a message. We got this question and it said, uh, if the, talking about the flu shot. So it said, if the flu shot is a vaccination for the flu, why do so many people still get the flu? Good question. But let's put it in proper perspective. The flu vaccine, let's say, unlike the measles vaccine, which is 99.9% protective for a long time, the flu vaccine at best is 50% protective. But and the important but is those that get the flu vaccine and get flu get milder disease. No question about that. If you look at people who wind up getting hospitalized flu, and I mean adults, and all this stuff, they are basically people who didn't get the flu vaccine. So yes, it's not 100% protective, far from it. But 50% and you get milder disease. Now that's important. It's probably more important today than it is, I don't know, maybe in the, some of the past because of the COVID. Could you imagine what happens when you go to the doctor and you have flu symptoms um, and you didn't get the flu vaccine? You know, how does he know it's really or she really the flu? Could it be COVID? Could it be something else? So it would be nice in a, for the practitioners to know that this person got the flu vaccine. And yes, this that I'm really seeing is more likely COVID uh, than it is flu. Because obviously, if you have COVID, there's a lot you do differently in terms of isolation and all this kind of stuff. So it would be nice to take flu out of the equation. Uh you know, and if the flu was just a runny nose for one or two days and your kid and no fever and no nothing else and they had the flu vaccine, yeah, it's probably a mild case of flu. No need to panic and go to the doctor. But on the other hand, if he's got a little runny nose and he didn't get the flu vaccine, and maybe has a little cough, maybe a little fever, well, I better go because how do I know this is not COVID? Could be flu, but it could also be covid so I think taking flu out of the equation for your child is going to be very helpful, and for you too. I mean, not just children, for adults. And that I can see where the flu vaccine is going to be more important this year in many respects than the other years because you got this complication. And in fact, um, when to get the flu vaccine, it's usually available sometime in August or September. And I know many of the pediatricians are trying to figure out how to have flu vaccine clinics, but you can't. It's not easy because you can't have everybody go to the office for a flu shot. You're going to do drive-by? Well, maybe they will. But there's going to be a big effort to have the flu vaccine given to people so it doesn't complicate whether they have flu, whether they have COVID, or they have both. Um, 
So if you can get flu vaccine for your child, and whether they have Medicaid or any kind of insurance, it's going to be covered. And the flu vaccine, by the way, even for adults, my understanding, and I'm not 100% sure, doesn't cost more than 25 bucks, if that much, you know, at Walgreens and Walmart and Walwhatever. Um, so it's not an expensive vaccine, even if you don't have insurance. Um, but again, it'll come in handy this year because of the COVID and trying to not have the two at the same time or complicating it. Again, it's not 100% effective, but 50% effective and the rest relatively mild disease is better than full-blown flu and full-blown COVID at the same time. Exactly. Um, that's my scenario on that. Yes. Well, we've got a few callers. So we're going to go first to Sue from Beaumont. Good morning, Hi, good morning. Sue. I'd, I'd like to ask y'all a question. I I know that a doctor in England had put out this false information that immunizations caused autism, and, but that's been disproven. But how many parents are still refusing to immunize their children, and are unimmunized children allowed in, in public schools? I mean, how does that work if they're not Great immunized? Great question. Great question. First of all, you're right. The guy from England and all that junk he put out was back in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So you're talking almost 20 some odd years. The other thing is they are not allowed in school, period. According to the school regulations, if you don't have your dates, your shots up to date, you can't enter school. Now, you might be given a 30-day waiver to get the shots. For some reason, not everybody can have them exactly by August 14th or whatever. But you're given a short waiver, and they're very strict about that. So if you don't get it, you get kicked out. There, there are people who don't want to vaccinate their children. They, they have to homeschool. They can't public school. They can't even private school. School is sort of out of their existence. What that number is, it varies. You'd like it to be none, but just making a guess, probably somewhere in this state, 10, maybe 15% don't vaccinate their child. It's still a lot, isn't it? You know, 99.99% have their vaccine. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Yeah, Thank you for calling. That's one thing that Mississippi has to be super proud of is our vaccine rates because we do have such strict restrictions on children going to school. Um, and so we have a very high vaccination rate, which is which is great and something to be proud of as a Mississippian. Actually, we have in the nation the highest school entry vaccination rate, period. Not like I said, 99.9%. So nationwide Going into a Mississippi school, you got the best chance of being prevented from getting all these diseases because everybody's immunized, including the teachers, by the way. Right. Okay. We've got a couple more callers, so we'll go next to Mike from Tupelo. Hey, Mike, what's going on? Good morning. Thanks for this show. So we're about to become new grandparents. We're in our mid to late 60s, and I wanted to see were there any vaccinations that we need to check on uh, in preparation for being around grandkids. Uh, yes, that's an easy answer. Now, if you were born before 
1957, like me, you don't need the measles, mumps, and German measles vaccine, okay? If you were born after 57, then the recommendation would be that you should get that vaccine, particularly if you're going to be around children. Um, and it depends. Now, if you already had measles and you know about it, then it's borderline. The same with German measles and the same with mumps. But, for example, if you were my age and you had no history of measles, you probably didn't have the measles vaccine. I know I didn't. Well, then you ought to consider it because you're going to be around your grandchildren. Uh, the other one that you will need is the whooping cough vaccine. No question about that, um, because adults, it's recommended, it used to be recommended to get a tetanus shot every 10 years. Well, now it's sort of get the whooping cough shot with the tetanus shot. And the odds are you haven't had a tetanus shot or a whooping cough shot in gosh knows how many years, um, even if you were born whenever. So you would need to be around your grandchildren, particularly infants, with that whooping cough shot, which is called TDAP, T-D-A-P. And you can get it at Walmart, Walgreens, your doctor, wherever you want to go. They have it. Um, basically, that's about it. You don't need the polio vaccine. You don't need the hepatitis B around your infants. And some of these others we talked about, you really don't need um, the only ones you look into is the whooping cough vaccine. Of course, the flu vaccine. You got to get that. You definitely don't want to give your kids flu or infants flu or whatever. Um, so getting flu vaccine to be around your children, infants, children or whatever, still a good idea, particularly if you're going to be around newborns in that age group You make sure you've had your whooping cough vaccine. And again, Borderline for measles, depending upon your age and whether or not you've had natural measles or you had the measles vaccine. You may well have had it, depending upon, if you're not old like me, you might have had the measles vaccine. Does that answer or am I not specific enough? No, no, that's perfect. But just to clarify, make sure I heard it correctly. So if you were born before 57, you do not need the measles, mumps vaccine? Correct. Okay. Is that because that vaccine prior to the 57 was uh, a different type or something? No, there was no vaccine, period. The vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella began to come in in the 60s. And what public health decided was if you took kids who were born before 57, the odds are they had natural measles, mumps, and German measles. And no need to worry about it, because we rarely ever see a case of measles in a 70-year-old or 65-year-old. So they decided that age, I don't know how they picked 57 and not 58, but that's what they did. They picked 57 and said, you don't need a measles vaccine if you were acquired before 57. Okay, Um, great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you, Mike. We're talking today about vaccines with Dr. Feldman. If you have any questions, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 And we'll go next to William, who's in Jackson. Good morning, William. Good morning. How are you today? 
Good. Thank you for calling. What's going on? Well, I've got a question that's most relevant to what we're dealing with today, which, of course, is COVID-19, and in particular, our students. I was in a meeting the other day where a conversation about uh, mandated testing or uh, required uh, PCR testing uh, should be a part of the immunization process for children returning to school or reopening the school, or reopening schools and that kind of a thing. I was wondering, Doc, what are your thoughts about uh, uh, the PCR testing for students and the regularity of that and how feasible that will be in order to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19 in Mississippi? I'll make one comment, and I won't bet my last nickel on it, but I think it just came out from the CDC, meaning relatively soon, that they are opposed exactly what you said, routine testing, testing to get into school, testing while in school, because somebody's symptomatic. But again, I don't want to bet my last nickel on that, but I think that's what they said. And I really can't answer that because I don't know all the details of what the CDC said, and I don't want to give you misinformation. What I suggest you do to pursue it further, and I'll probably wind up pursuing it further now because I haven't thought about it, is to go to the CDC website and type in just that. PCR testing for children going back to school, PCR COVID testing. It'll all come up. It'll be all over the place. And I think you can get their answer. And um, I would have to go along with what they say uh, because, again, they've got a lot more information than I do. But I believe that's what their answer was. And I'm sorry I can't give you all the details because, again, I need my last nickel, so I can't take a chance. I think some of the hesitations with doing the PCR test is, um, number one, it's it's not free. So you have to pay for it. And I think the average test is close to around a hundred or so dollars. I'm not sure what your insurance will pay for. Um, and then the other part is the turnaround too. Um, the turnaround in a lot of these is not that great. I mean, there are some places where you can get the faster results, but I think those are some of the hesitations with that. Um, with doing the routine PCR test. And I think there's some, from what I've read, there are some new tests that are coming out that are a little bit quicker, um, but maybe not as accurate and sensitive as the PCR tests are. But I think those have been in talks for potentially able to do something like you were talking about, William. But as far as I know, there have those have not been approved for that and recommended just yet. But I think there are some some different types of tests in the works for something that you're talking about, William. But like Dr. Feldman said, as of now, there is no official recommendations for that. You know, and I thank you both for that. Um, I think one of the dilemmas that we're dealing with as it relates to COVID-19, of course, uh, and you may or may not agree, is the lack of consistency. Um, I did hear or read that the CDC at one point, uh, and this was not specifically for children, but just in general, was that uh, testing uh, was 
obviously going to have to be increased. But I think to your point, ma'am, the frequency uh, as well as the turnaround time has been the, the major issue. Um, as I close on the point, though, while we've noticed that there's been a lot of testing, let's say, through UMMC and maybe community health centers, I know that the priority has been mostly on adults and not on children. So my biggest concern is as we return to school, not knowing the status of, uh, of students, how that could perpetuate uh, the spread of the disease within the schools and within the communities overall. I'll stand down and, and continue to listen to the program, yeah. but thank you both very you're, much. You're hundred percent right. I'll make another comment. First of all, if you look on the MDS, MSDH website, you can see the number of cases in children. And we know, and this is probably nationwide, at least 10% of the cases are in children. So you're right in what you said. Um, something else just to keep in mind, that when you talk about school, you really have to talk about elementary school and middle and high school. Because elementary children, if they do have the virus, are less likely to, to spread it. It's the middle school and the high school where the major concerns would come up for easy spread. You know, and seeing more and more cases now in, quote, children, and then looking at the age range, they're that 10, 10 years and up, et cetera. So you're right in what you say, um, and I, I'm not sure how it's going to play out, but it's a difference between elementary school second graders and third graders and it is seventh and eighth graders and that will have to be dealt with separately again if as, as time goes on and the cdc yes it does change because things change things are changing which they hadn't anticipated so sometimes what they said a month ago they've already changed that because they had to update where we were and i'll quit on that um I gotta say something about adolescent immunizations before we run out of time. Is that all right, Morgan? Well, I think we need to take a quick break. Okay. Um, we're t we're due for our break, so we're gonna take a quick break, and then we've got another caller, Les, who's on okay. the line. So, Les, if you can hang on, and we'll do our quick break, and we'll be right back. This is an MDB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We've been talking today about vaccines and the different immunizations that our children need for school. Uh, we have Dr. Feldman on with us, and he's helping us with these discussions. So if you have any questions or some comments that you would like to share, please give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 And we will go to Les, who is in DeSoto County. Hey, Les, thanks for holding on for us. Oh, you're welcome. Good morning, Les. Good morning, Dr. Feldman. My question, I have a couple of dear friends they don't actually live in mississippi but um they refuse would refuse adamantly 
to have themselves or their children vaccinated on religious grounds, what would be their status? In this state, they would still be left out of school. We don't have religious exemptions. We only have medical exemptions. Mm-hmm. So if they came here, their kids couldn't go to school. They don't have immunizations, even for religious reasons. So being a Christ scientist, Jehovah's Witness, or which I think they are, that would right. not. But if they were to live in Mississippi, they would not have any exemption at all. Correct. Correct. No, it, it, it's just a point that I thought of because I know that there are Mississippi being a state with deep religious roots, uh, there may be some people out there who are perhaps torn by their conscience in that area. And, uh, it might be useful to have some advice given publicly on that, that count. Well, I mean, it's we've had this law in effect, I think, since, I'm not sure, somewhere in the 70s or the 60s, about, and it was decided back then, again, probably a lot more religious people back in the 60s in this state and in the 50s, whenever the law came into effect. But the legislature agreed that we would just have medical exemptions and not religious exemptions. And in fact, some states in the nation, not many, but some have gotten to the point where they are removing religious exemptions so that the only thing is medical exemptions. Philosophical exemptions, those basically are out of out of play in many states. And so there's an attempt to reduce the exemptions in many states, getting rid of religious exemptions and um, called philosophical or personal feeling exemptions. Or conscience exemptions. Yeah. Con- I yes. Yeah. I understand, Dr. Feldman. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Missy. You have a great day. Well, Thank you. you yeah, too. thank you for your call. You're welcome. Bye-bye. So we're talking today about vaccines. And if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. 672 So we're going to talk uh, real quickly about the HPV vaccine, which is not required by school. Um, and the meningitis vaccine, which is also not required by school, but it's one of the ones that we recommend for our adolescents. Can you tell us a little bit about the importance of those vaccines? Well, let me just start off by saying to get into the seventh grade in this state, you need another Tdap vaccine, which is another version of the whooping cough vaccine. You got one when you went into kindergarten or pre-K, and then you need another one to get into the seventh grade, and that's required by law. So if you don't have that, you can't go into school. End of story when it comes to that vaccine. Um, Now, there are two other vaccines that should be given at this time. One is the HPV vaccine, a human papillomavirus vaccine. It's been around now since about 2005, somewhere, somewhere around 15 years. And what this vaccine does is prevents many cancers. Nowadays, the most common cancers, it prevents cervical cancer. And that came out for women. That's why in the beginning, it was only for teenage girls. Uh, But now we know that oral cancers are becoming more and more common. And nobody really knows why, but they just are, just like cervical cancer. Well, this vaccine, now you don't get cervical cancer when you're 12 or 13. 
you get it sometime when in your 20s, 30s, or 40s. The same with the oral cancer vaccines. They're later in life. They're not now. But what this vaccine has been shown to do is the earlier you give it, i.e. 11 and 12 or even 9 and 10, it's got a better chance of preventing these cancers 30 and 40 years down the line, uh, not two weeks down the line. We're talking about 30 or 40 years. And there are other cancers. I don't have to go into all the cancers that are caused by HPV, but there's about 12 different ones. But the most common, which most people know, is cervical. There's a uterine cancer. There's a vulvar cancer. But we're talking about cervical cancer and then this oral cancer, which is both men and women. And there's now more oral cancer than cervical cancer. And the best way to prevent it is with this vaccine. It's two doses. You come in for your Tdap vaccine. You just get the one dose. You come back 30 days later, 35 days later, and you get your second dose and end the story. And you're covered basically for the rest of your life. Um, and why people don't take it, well, we could spend five hours on that. That's a waste of time. Just get the vaccine if you want to prevent cancer in your kid. Sort of end the story. Is that too dogmatic? Yeah, I apologize for that. Uh, the other vaccine is the meningococcal vaccine, which causes meningitis. Now, meningitis is not very common, granted. More common in young children, uh, one years of age, two years of age, etc. And in fact, Dr. McLeod mentioned she saw a kid with hip with hips which was a cause of meningitis, which is now very rare. And she saw one of the few rare cases we see. The other is this meningococcal vaccine. And the reason for giving that now is the next freaky time period for this meningitis is adolescence and the young, adult, the young adulthood. Um, so giving it now, particularly if your kid's going to go to college, whether it be two-year college or four-year college, there's a risk for getting meningitis, this type of meningitis, in those college years. So we give it now because we also know that teenagers tend to get it. Um, so we give it. And again, you get one shot now, and then you get a couple of shots later on. Uh, I think when you're 16 or 17, I'd have to look up the age. Yeah, it's but 16 time, to 18 time, somewhere. Yeah. When you come in for your seventh grade, you're required by law to get the um, Tdap vaccine. And you should get, if you want to prevent cancer in your kid later in life, the HPV vaccine and, of course, the meningococcal vaccine to prevent that infection. Did I say that strong enough? Yeah, you did. You did. That's what I always, one of the ways I introduce the HPV vaccine when I'm talking to parents is um, I always say, if I told you I had a way to prevent cancer from your child from developing cancer in the future, I mean, we're all going to sign up for that. It's that cancer, whether you like to admit it or not, is it's always one of everybody's fears as a human. Um, so if we have a way to prevent cancer, why would you not do it for your child? Um, the vaccine is very safe and uh, it's been around for a long time, longer than a lot of people think. Um, and 
hundreds of millions of doses have been given of this vaccine without any problems. So uh, I've, I'm a firm believer in the HPV vaccine, and I try to get all my patients to get it, both girls and boys, um, because it is a very important vaccine. One uh, thing I was going to say, I think you said one month apart, but I think they have to be six months apart Absolutely. if you're only doing yeah. yeah, so if you're, you're if right. you're only doing the two doses, so if you get the if you start the vaccine series before you're 15 years old, then you can only have to take two doses of the HPV vaccine. After 15, you have to take three doses, which now they have kind of loosened the age range for HPV vaccine. Uh, it used to be up to 26, but now I think it's up to 45. You can get it. Um, but that would be something to talk to your doctor about. Um, but yeah, you'd have to get, if you're doing the two doses, it's six months apart. And one good thing too, is you don't have to restart. So if you don't get the second dose right at six months, you can always catch back up as your child is going to the doctor and getting their checkups. So you don't have to start the series all over again, which is something that's nice. And a lot of people have questions about that. So I always like to make sure they know that if you miss that six month mark, it's okay. We'll catch you up at some point over the next year or two, hopefully, as you come back to the doctor for your checkups. Yeah, many times you can go to the doctor's office just to get the shot. Don't have to have a checkup and all this for that second six month shot. Yeah. Exactly. Kids, yeah, they've expanded the age to about 45 years. But keep in mind, you would like to have the vaccine before way before you can be at risk. Yes. Um, yes. So, I mean, people who are getting it at 45, they've already been at risk and they still can get it. But the yes. best time to get it is at 9 and 10 or 11 and 12 years before 15 years of age. So we've got a few minutes left, so we'll go to our caller, Kevin, who's in Pearl. Hey, Kevin, yeah, what's hey. going on today? Oh, not much. Thanks for taking my call. I uh, I think everybody agrees vaccines are an amazing thing. I don't think that's disputed at all. I think what is disputed is is the degree of injury uh, that they may cause. Uh, we we agree that there's good, very good things, but there's a lot of debate out there whether or not they cause injury. I just want to get your thoughts on. There's a vaccine board. Uh, I'm a practicing attorney. I'm a uh, I'm familiar with it. That over $4 billion in compensation has been paid out since its inception uh, for people that have been injured by vaccines. And only 1% of the people that file a claim in that board are ever even heard. Um, and vaccine companies have blanket immunity, cannot be sued in, in court. So these, these vaccine boards are being paid for, the injuries are being paid for by taxpayer money not by vaccine companies' money. Um, and so the four main vaccination companies uh, that we know of have been hit with criminal penalties for falsifying uh, evidence, for falsifying research uh, here recently that I'm aware of. So do you think it's a good idea that, that vaccine companies should have blanket immunity from lawsuits and that taxpayers should pay uh, for injuries when they occur? I'm not as sophisticated as you when it comes to all the laws. And Morgan can chime in if she knows more than me. First of all, how much injury from vaccines there are, nobody really knows. And first of all, I don't think it's boards with an S. 
I think it's that one, and I can't think of the name of it, that handles the vaccine injuries. And what was set up years ago, and that was probably before you were born, your voice sounds kind of young, is that there was concern from side effects from the vaccines. And there were some, no question about that. And it was decided that in terms of public health, it was a lot easier to set up this vaccine compensation board for people who thought they were injured by the vaccines. And you're right, many of them never even go all the way through the system. It's reviewed, and if it's a possible injury, not probable, but even just possible, my understanding is the Vaccine Compensation Board pays something. And that was decided that that was better in terms of public health. You'd kill a lot more people if you didn't have the vaccine than, quote, having the vaccine, which isn't killing anybody anyway. So in the long run, it was better. I don't know about falsified research that um, you, you mentioned, um, and I don't know about what vaccine companies were being sued. I mean, the ones that I know of that dealt with all the vaccines that I'm talking about, um, to my knowledge, they haven't been sued for anything. Um, so you have more information on me than that. But just keep in mind, that injury board was set up because it was a lot easier to deal with people who said they had injuries and compensate them for something rather than not, because it was more important to have the vaccines to save more lives than it was to pay out. Yes, it's taxpayer money. I guess it is. Um, can't help you on that point. Um, well, so I don't know. Morgan, you want to add? I, I don't really have that much to add. I think you kind of handled that question. But since he did, uh, we've got like one minute left. But one thing I did want to say, too, is since he did bring up vaccine injury, one of the things that people are concerned about with vaccines is, you know, is it too much? Is it going to overwhelm my child's immune system? And I just want to say real fast that there has been plenty of studies to show that what your child's body comes in contact with every day is way more, way more. Like I'm talking two to 2,000 to 6,000 compared to 150 times more antigens uh, than a vaccine would be. So it will not overwhelm your child's immune system and they're very, very safe to give. Um, but I think that's all the time. And thank you so much for Dr. Feldman for coming on and sharing your vaccine wisdom with us. Um, everyone stay safe and wash your hands, wear your mask, and socially distance. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. Thanks, Jay, for being our producer and Michelle for the call screener. Stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio.